Hey, who here has ever heard of a Muppet? A Muppet. Muppets? Anyone? We have a picture, I think, of a Muppet. You guys really know who he is, right? Well, he's a Muppet. You know, they had their own TV show back in the 80s. You know what's wrong? I mean, I'm talking, but... How's that? Better? I don't know. I lost my head. I got to forgot my head back there today. So, uh, yes, Muppets. That's where we were. And uh, did you guys know there's a Muppet movie coming out? You do? Really? For real? I didn't know there was one. So I started looking it up, and then I realized there's one coming out in like a week or two, like in the 23rd, I think. So they're re- I don't know if they're redoing it, they're having their own. But uh, anyway, uh, every time I think of Muppets, I think of my brothers and how we used to mess around. Uh, you know, we used to wrestle and fight all the time. And uh, it just brings me back to when I was a teenager. Because when I was a teenager, uh, we were only a few, uh, about a year apart each. And uh, we always were wrestling and taunting each other and doing things we shouldn't be doing. And consequently, it led to circumstances where we would always get in trouble. You know how it is, right? If you're kids. And that's, that's the way things were. And one day, I was outside my bedroom door in the hallway and I was talking with my brother Lee and I, and I guess I, I probably taunted him because all I remember is the next thing I know is we're in the hallway and like here's the hallway wall and there's another one here and he's pushing like this and he's pushing me against the wall. Right? Like trying to hurt me. Keep pushing and pushing and pushing. And like the pressure's building up. And I'm like, is that the best you've got? You know, because, you know, you just... And so he's pushing and all of a sudden the pressure builds and then pop! We hear the sound of like drywall cracking and breaking. And we both go like, uh-oh, you know. So we stop, we turn around and we look. And there in the wall is a hole the shape of my nogas. That's a... That's what my wife says. That means my butt. You know, the shape of my butt right there in the wall. Is that okay to say from the pulpit? Because she says it all the time. That's all I know. And uh, and so there's this hole now in the wall, and I don't know what to do with it because you know we're teenagers, we're these young kids, and we're like, well, what are we gonna do? I don't know how to fix this. I don't know anything about drywall. I don't know anything about construction. So like, but we wanted to do something because we knew right if we left it, we were gonna get in deep trouble if someone found out. So. I took some balled up newspaper and I like stuffed it into the hole to try to like bring it forward and then I found, I don't even know what I found. It was some kind of putty, some kind of masticky thing in the garage and I kind of put it over the wall and I was fixing the wall and then, um, and it, w- the paper would like push back, you know, and it was like this weird mottly surface and I even tried to paint over it. I mean, it looked horrible. It was obvious that there was something wrong with the wall there. And now the house was going to be shown for sale. And my uncle was selling the house. So I'm like, we can't, we can't leave this like this. I mean, you know, I might accept it, but I can tell anyone who can, anyone can see this is a mess. So the funny thing, the interesting thing was we took this. Now, I don't know where teenage boys, teenage guys, young men have a Muppet poster movie, one of the original ones, but somehow we had a Muppet poster movie. And uh, it looked like this. That was the old one. And because we were trying to hide it from my uncle and hide it from people who were showing uh, the home, coming to see the home, we put it on the wall and hung it there. In the middle of the hallway, all of a sudden, you're walking down and there's a Muppet poster, Muppet movie poster. And it wasn't even like normal height because my butt is, you know, down here. We had to like lower it to like here. So as you're walking down the hall, you're like, what the heck is that? And... uh 
I tried fixing, we couldn't do it, and weeks went by, as weeks would go by, every time I get that sinking feeling and I'd pass that poster because I knew what was behind it, right? The mistakes, everything that I had messed up and that I couldn't fix it. It was just a reminder. And uh, finally, eventually, my brother, Lee, who the one who pushed me through the wall, well, he, he had a friend and his friend, his dad knew construction, he knew some of that, so he came over and he fixed it. And, you know, 10 years later, 20 years later, I was talking with my uncle and I was like, well, you know, did you ever know that we put a hole in the wall in the, in the, in the, in the upstairs? And he goes, he goes, of course I did. And I go, you mean the poster didn't fool you? You know, he's like, he goes, listen, why would teenage boys be hanging a Muppet poster movie? He's like, of course I knew. Oh, man. Did you ever mess something up and try as much as you could? You just couldn't fix it? You ever have one of those situations? You just seem to keep making things worse where one decision goes into another and uh, you wish you could go back and change it, right? I mean, certainly the Muppet, po- puppet, Muppet poster movie, <laughs> as it came to be known, is really not that big a deal. But, I mean, did you ever wish you could go back in life and really seriously change something that you did? Did you ever, um, you know, what I do hear a lot from people is they say this. They say, I don't have any regrets in life. And I hear that and I understand the statement behind it because a lot of them explain it and they'll say, well, I don't have any regrets because it made me wiser or it made me who I am today, right? But if I were honest with you right now, there are a few things, honestly, that I wish I had never done in life. I mean, there were things that I said to people, and I can think of them right now today, that I wish, even now, I could take them back. There were money decisions that I've made, or money wasted, that I wish I could have another chance at and do differently. There were, ever had one of those split-second decisions where you really didn't have much time to think, in the heat of the moment, you had one option or another, and you just chose that option, and then later you say, man, that wasn't very courageous of me. Right? Or they, that really, I shouldn't have take, done that. And if I could go back, I would have changed that. I would do it differently. People or events that maybe you weren't there for, that you would have showed up and been there for, if you could just go back in time and do it. And when we think about it, I think when we think about it in those terms, we all wish we could have done something differently. Maybe there was an accident that you know you could have avoided. Or a career that you'd chosen and you wish, well, maybe I could have gone back and changed that. Or a relationship that you would not have gotten into. And maybe something you got involved in that marked you or scarred you deeply, right? Some situation, some instance, some relationship. And what we do is we call those things in our life, right, baggage, right? Because we say, I wish I got rid of the baggage. So I think every one of us has these things. And there's some instances, there's something so big in life that they actually change the course of our life forever, And maybe where you find yourself today sitting here thinking about these things that I'm saying and you're like, you know what, there are a lot of things. And in fact, my life really hasn't turned out the way I hoped it had turned out. It's not the way I dreamed it would be. It's not really satisfying me. And I wish there was something else I could do. Our minds may be drifting back to those forks in the roads of life where we could have chosen one option or the other, right? Man, I wish I could just go back to that one fork, that one point in time, and if I had made that choice, it could have changed my whole life. All things adding up to wishing we had gotten it right the first time, right? If I had just done it right the first time. And how great would it be if we could start over again? How great would it be if we could have a fresh start. I want you to hold on to that thought for a moment. 
Right now we're in a uh, series the, uh, called Blueprint, Discover God's Vision for Your Life. And we're in the book of Nehemiah, so I want you to pull out your Bible if you brought it today and turn it to chapter 9 because that's what we'll be reading. But let me bring you up to speed. 140 years before Nehemiah gets here, and we're in this book and these events are occurring, what was Jerusalem and Israel, Israel was in the land of Jerusalem. They were surviving. They were their own nation. And then this thing called the Babylonian Empire and a guy named King Nebuchadnezzar comes into the land and he takes them captive. He beats them militarily and he takes all the people, the majority of the people, back to this foreign land with him captive. And in the process, he destroys Jerusalem. So there's no city walls and everything is broken down and he destroys the temple. There's no temple left either. Now, Let's fast forward about 30 years after that, after King Nebuchadnezzar does this, another empire called the Persian Empire comes to power and they defeat the Babylonian Empire. And now there's a new king and new people reigning. And what happens, let's fast forward a little bit forward more than that, there's a guy named Zerubbabel, he's a Jewish man, and he's allowed to go back because the Persians say, go ahead, you can go back now and you can rebuild the temple. Because King Solomon's temple totally destroyed. So now they're able to go back and have a place of worship. Zerubbabel goes to build that. And then fast forward a little bit more, Ezra, a guy named Ezra, he goes back into the land and they give him a decree and says, you can take any Jewish person who's willing to go with you, anyone who wants, you can now go back to your land. You don't have to stay here. So now they're actually freed up from the captivity. They have a temple and they're ready to go back. But when they get there, the city is in ruins. There's no city wall. There's no protection. So like, I don't know how good this is. And now fast forward to Nehemiah. Nehemiah shows up on the scene at the beginning of this book. And he says, can I go back and can I build a wall? And the king says, yes. The Persian king says, go ahead, you can rebuild the wall. So, now, in this book that we've been studying the last few weeks, this is what we've learned. We've learned that the temple is uh, built, even though the surrounding nations are opposing them. Even though they're having internal struggles. And despite the fact that they are threatening Nehemiah's life, we get to the point in the story right now where the temple is completed, the wall is there, and the people are there. Imagine Israel for a moment. Just imagine here. All these events have occurred and now everything is completed and they're standing there and it's done. They can sacrifice to God. They can live in the area and protect themselves safely. And they can stay in the land. They have a brand new start, don't they? It's like this is a brand new start. But up to this point, Israel had messed up so much and their past was marked by so many continual failures that there is a question on their mind, and this is it. How do we start again? How do we get it right this time? That's what they're thinking. And today we find Israel in a place where they needed to start again, where they wanted to start again. And if you were in that place today, if you ever wanted a fresh start, if you ever wanted to begin again, then I think there's something that you're going to learn today through the nation of Israel. So we're going to start reading in chapter 9, verse 1. It says this, now on the 24th day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting, in sackcloth and with dust on their heads. Then those of Israelite lineage separated themselves from all foreigners, and they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for one-fourth of the day, and for another-fourth they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. 
Listen, there are three things we can learn from Israel about starting again. And the first one is this in your outline. Acknowledge past mistakes. One, acknowledge past mistakes. In the very chapter before this, Ezra the scribe gathers all the people together. They've finished everything and they start reading the law. Now, the law was the first five books of the Bible, of the, well, yeah, the Jewish Bible, the Torah. They're reading all of this, and he's reading it out loud, and it's taking them days, and as they read, they complete the first day, and it's also the whole history of Israel. They get to that day, and the, at the end of the day, and then you'd think they'd all be celebrating, right? They'd think this is a moment for joy, everything's going great, but instead they all start mourning and weeping. They're all like crying. And Ezra's like, hey guys, Listen, this is not the time to mourn. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go home. I want you to celebrate and enjoy yourselves. So they go home and they celebrate. And they do the same little ritual for seven days. Seven days. They keep coming back. They keep reading through the book of the law. And they keep telling them, go and celebrate. But now on the eighth day that we just read, they show up in sackcloth and ashes or dust on their head and they're fasting. Anywhere in the Bible where you see these guys showing up in sackcloth and ashes, that means they're repenting. It's a sign of true repentance because they confess their sins before God. And while they're there and they do this, the elders, that we, if we were to read on 4 and 5, they stand up and they cry out to everyone and they say this giant prayer to the Lord. And the rest of chapter 9 is this big prayer that these elders are praying before the people to their God. Now, this prayer recounts Israel's history. talks about how God uh, made a covenant with Abraham. How God rescued them from Egypt. How He brought them through the desert and provided for them. How when they got to the promised land, that He defeated the nations before them. And then they were, took possession of all these vineyards and all these farms that were already made up. I mean, they just walked into these homes and they were theirs. They didn't even have to do anything. And through this prayer, we see two pictures of Israel. We see a very micro uh, history and a very broad picture of Israel. My wife's camera, she has a camera, and uh, you know, when we want to take a picture of something very small, you ever guys see like a bug and you're like, wow, that's a cool looking bug, it's very colorful. And you're like, how can we get a picture of that? Well, my wife has a setting on it where you can do that, it's called macro. Now, I think it should be called micro, but it's called macro because it makes small things big. And anyway, you do that setting, and what it does is it focuses in on that tiny little thing, and that's very clear, but everything else around it is very blurry. But then if you switch it back, then it takes a picture of the broad context. Everything is very clear, but the small stuff is very blurry. So now, if you take a look at this picture, the very close-up picture of Israel, what we see is something interesting. Israel would generally have happy endings. They would start off maybe in trouble and things would get bad. But they would turn to God and fix every, and He would fix everything, and there, it all ends well. Right? That's the very micro picture, the very small picture. But if we were to blow that up and we were to look at the whole context, we see a very different picture. If we were to pan out, we would see something, a different story. Because it would tell the story of people who are constantly blowing it. People who are constantly making the wrong decisions, constantly rebelling from God. And as Ezra is reading through all of this, it suddenly dawns on them something. We are the problem. It's been us all this time. We repeatedly kept doing the things that we know we shouldn't have done that keep getting us back into this state that we're in right now. Man, the choices that we have been making have led to our defeat that we've blown it, we realize that we're responsible for all the circumstances that have befallen us. 
And this is an important lesson for you and me. Because our paths have led us to right where we are right now. It's true. That some total of our decisions are, that you've made over the past are dictating the decision, your, your circumstances right now. Your life is designed the way you designed it to be. Through the choices and the things that we've made over time. And the only way we're going to get a different result in life is by making a change. I mean, I think we all would like to just have like a magic wand though, wouldn't we? That's what I would like. We just like wave the magic wand and it changes it. And we have the result that we want. But we don't have magic wands. Because if we had the magic wand, then we personally wouldn't have to make any changes, would we? We wouldn't have to do anything. You see, faults in our lives are sometimes the hardest thing to realize. You know, you ever been in an argument and there comes that one point in time where you've been arguing back and forth. I mean, sometimes I have discussions with my wife and we're talking and then there's this point in the middle of the argument. You thought you were totally right and you suddenly realize by something that she said to me that I was wrong, right? You're like, uh-oh. Yeah, let's just forget about this, huh? Let's just move on. You know, because we don't want to... It's that, that, that thought that, man, I was wrong. I, was, I did it wrong. I mean, that's so, why it's so hard sometimes to confront other people, Right? Because we know it's going to be a very difficult conversation. Because we don't like to admit or see our faults. It's hard to face the reality and the flaws in our lives. I was at a leadership conference a while back, and a guy named Andy Stanley, if you've heard of him, he's saying, listen, the closest people to you, they know you best. They really do. In fact, they know you so well, they know all of your good and they know all of your bad. They already know your flaws. But the interesting thing is even those people that are close to us, we still walk around not admitting or trying to hide the things that are very obvious to everybody else. Because we don't want people to see them. It's not until we recognize that we are the cause of most of our problems in life that we'll ever be able to make a change. It's the, until we do those things, we will never be able to move forward. It's the same in our life. It's the same with our relationship with God. And that's what Jesus said. He uses this parable. He tells this story in, in uh, Luke. And here I put it in your outline. Let's read it. He says, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you this, that I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. This is a very clear picture of this Pharisee who thought, who wouldn't admit any of his faults. And this other guy, he's done a lot of bad things, but he's there before God confessing himself. And he says, one of these guys, the tax collector, the one who confessed, is the one who will be forgiven. Who had his sins forgiven. He's the one that could move on. He's the one that could move forward. You see, none of us, we can't move forward until we admit our past mistakes. Until we confront them face to face. It's only then that we can move on to step two. And what is step two? Let's read in verse nine, uh, chapter 9, verse 32. The suddenly, there's a shift in this prayer that they've been praying out loud. It says this, Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and mercy, do not let the trouble seem small before you that has come upon us. 
Our kings and our priests, princes, our priests and our prophets, our fathers and all your people. For the days of the kings of Assyria until this day, however, you are just in all that has befallen us. For you have dealt faithfully, but we have done wickedly. Neither our kings, nor our princes, our priests, nor our fathers have kept your law, nor heeded your commandments and your testimonies with which you testified against them. For they have not served you in their kingdom, or in the many good things that you gave them, or in the large and rich land which you have set before them, nor did they turn from their wicked works. Here we are, servants today, in the land that you gave us to our fathers to eat its fruit and its bounty. Here we are, servants in it, and it yields much increase to the kings you have set over us because of our sins. Also, they have dominion over our bodies and our cattle at their pleasure, and we are in great distress. And because of all this, we make a covenant and write it. Our leaders, our Levites, and our priests seal it. The second thing that we do or we can learn from Israel is recognize that God is the only solution. God is the only solution. There's this interesting phenomenon that became evident in Israel's history as they're reading over this. They noticed something interesting, that when we drew close to God, they prospered. Even when all the other nations are struggling, as long as they drew close to God, their nation prospered. And when they didn't follow God, things went bad. So when they obeyed and followed Him, things went well. Follow God, things good. Forget God, things bad. Very simple. Right? And they see this pattern. This happens regularly. It's happening over and over. And Israel had the habit of turning to other gods of the other nations. And I think it's kind of interesting because none of these gods ever helped them. Everything and every time they turned to other solutions aside from God, nothing worked. Nothing. These other nations had their gods and they never worked for them either. Because the only one who could really help them was God. You know, as it is for Israel, it's the same for you and me. You know, I'm kind of like Israel, I hate to admit it at times, but you know what? Sometimes I'll try almost anything first. No, I got it, I'll take care of this. No, 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 I'm going to make this decision. All right, I'm going to do this. And instead of going directly to God, and I know somehow He can do it, I just don't. You see, anything apart from God as the solution is just like the Muppet movie poster. Hanging over the thing, I'm like, this is my solution. It's just the Muppet movie. And God's like, listen, there's somebody who can really help you. And the only person who can help you deal with those things is God. You know, something else that became very evident as they're praying and they would be studying their history, no matter how bad it was, no matter what they did, God remained faithful. God was always there. I mean, they, they, they rejected these amazing works and miracles. They just like forgot about them. They worshipped foreign gods. And they disobeyed God's commands. They even killed God's prophets, it would say in here. They did evil things to provoke God, but yet He never forsook them. He chastised them, but He never abandoned them, and He never destroyed them. He was always there. When they cried out to God, He saved them. And when they hit rock bottom, when they could no longer save themselves, they would turn to God, and God, every single time, was faithful. There wasn't a time where He wasn't. You know, it's not like the boy who cried wolf. There's a, there was a kid in my neighborhood when I was very young, when I was like eight years old, his name was Joey Coletti. 
I'm a good Italian boy, you know. And Joey Coletti, he was a couple years younger than me, but he had a habit of fibbing all the time. Like, no one trusted Joey because you never believed anything that he said. One day he knocked on our door and he came home, he came to our house, and there we came outside and he had this bouquet of flowers that he had, like, picked from neighboring flower beds, I suppose. And he's standing there like this and he looks all sad and, and, and things are very sorrowful. And we're like, hey, what's up, Joey? And he's like, listen, I want you to know that Davy is dead. David Reed, another friend down the street, we lived in a big circle. He's like, he's dead. And we're like, no, he's not. I just saw David the other day. And he's like, no, no, he's dead. And he was like sorrowful. And he's like, I think we probably should say a prayer to God or something like that. And then David comes up behind him. He's like, hey guys, what's up? You know, he's like, and we're like, all right, he's dead. Then who's that? You know, and Joey's like, it's his ghost. He goes, listen, Joey, after a time, kept doing it, kept doing it, kept doing it. We didn't trust him anymore. We didn't even believe anything that he was about to say. But it's not that way with God. They keep messing up and they keep doing this over and over and God, and God had every right to say, listen, I don't have to trust you anymore. I'm not going to believe in you anymore. I'm not going to help you anymore. And yet God was always faithful. And time and time again, that's the way God is. This one verse I took out of the, their prayer, it's in your outline. It says, they refused to obey, speaking of Israel, and they were not mindful of your wonders that you did among them. But they hardened their necks, and in their rebellion they appointed a leader to return to their bondage. But you, God, ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness, and you did not forsake them. No matter what they did, they were ready to go back to Egypt, and yet God still, in His abundant mercy and grace, took them back. There is no one or anything in this planet, or in your life, that is like God. Nobody. Nothing. God is full of mercy and grace, and He loves you so much, no matter how much, no matter how many mistakes you make, no matter how much you blow it, He's always willing to take you back. There's nobody like that. What do we give somebody, you know, they do something wrong with it, okay, that's one, you know. Oh, they do it again, that's two. Do it again, three, that's it. Like, how many times are we going to forgive somebody for keep doing the same thing over and over? And yet God is always faithful. There's nobody like our God. There's nobody who's going to love you more and care about you more and be willing to give you another chance except our God. You know, I, you might wonder in the face of these mighty miracles, you know, why is it that they couldn't follow Him? I mean, they saw the Red Sea part from them. Right? Part. And they walk down the middle and Pharaoh's army's coming after him when they were about to die. And then he closes on Pharaoh's army. And then it's only a number of days later before they're worshiping a calf. A golden calf that they made. Like, I'm thinking, how can this happen? And yet, you know, we are not that much different than Israel. We're not. We know that story. We have it right here. And we have so many even more stories than they had. And yet, oftentimes, it's the same for us. We're, kind of, we're just like Israel, the truth. Listen, listen to what Paul was saying to the Corinthians. He says, these things, like this recounting of the history of Israel, happened to them as examples for us. They were written down to warn us who live at the end of the age. That's us. We live at the end of the age. And Paul's saying, the history of Israel and the things that they went through and the turmoil of going back and forth, that's all as an example to us. It's a warning to us. 
Not just the pitfalls of life, but also the grace and mercy, the testimony of God's grace. You know, most of us, the truth is, know in our hearts that God is the solution. We really do. No matter where you are in life, and people who say they may not even know Him, I believe deep down that they do believe He's the solution. I mean, we say things like this, and this is why I know it too, is we say, I need to pray more, right? Why do we say that? Because we know that that's the solution. We need to draw close to God. We say things like, I need to read my Bible more. I need to get closer to God. Some people say it like this, maybe if they're not as close to God, they say, I need to get back to doing what's right. Because they know that's where it can be found. Because that's where the answers lie. And I truly believe that maybe it's the only thing that we really know. See, the elders and the people, they recognized that the only solution was God. And so, having done that, they now want to do something about it. We're going to move into chapter 10 and read from verse 28. Now, the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the Nethanim, and all those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, everyone who had knowledge and understanding, these joined with their brethren, their nobles, and entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and to do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his ordinance and his statutes. We would not give our daughters as wives to the peoples of the land, nor take their daughters for our sons. If the peoples of the land brought wares or any grain to sell on the Sabbath day, we would not buy it from them on the Sabbath or on the holy day, and we would forego the seven years' produce and the exacting of every debt, skip down to 35, and we made ordinances to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of all trees year by year to the house of the Lord. The third thing is commit ourselves to God. Commit ourselves to God. Um, when I was in high school, I used to run track. You probably can see that I'm built, right, for track because I'm skinny. And uh, the first, my junior year, I ran and I did okay. And the way you get points, it's a points-based system. If you come in first, you get like five points. Second, you get three, one. And that goes toward your team in a meet. But then it also, personally, that you accrue that over time, uh, over your career. And like, well, and if you could get a certain number of points, you could actually make varsity on your team. Now, my friend Tom Rigotti and I had a bet who could make the most points that year. Now, I want to pre preface this by saying this was before I was a Christian, okay? And we bet a, a case of beer who could get the most points. Now, I don't know where teenagers were going to get a case of beer. Well, actually, I do, but I'm not going to tell you. But... But I was more motivated, strangely enough, by getting a case of beer than being on the varsity squad, and I don't know why that was. Needless to say, but I'll, I'll tell you, I started committing more and more because I wanted to beat Tom Rigotti. And so I finally, when I did, I outscored him by so much. And I actually made varsity team, but it's because I decided to get committed to what I was doing. And you know, I learned a lesson from that later in life because there came a point in my 20s when I was far from God, where I felt like I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. I felt lost, and I had no clue what I was going to do. And so I moved to California. And when I was there, what I decided to do, this is the lesson I had learned from Tom Rigotti, was that I needed to commit. 
And what I did was, this is the commitment I made, this is the simple commitment. I was going to read my Bible every night and I was going to pray to God before I went to bed. Every single night. And that's what I did. And I didn't stop. And that's when God took my life and changed it forever. See, Israel recognized there are areas that they consistently failed in. And that they needed to make some commitments to these areas. The first one is that they were going to follow the law and keep the commandments. Because every time they walked away from the commandments of God and they stopped following Him and His ways, that's when they messed up. The second thing they did is they said, we're not going to intermarry among the other nations. You see, what would happen is if you got married, well, you guys, if you're married, you know what it's like. And if not, you'll find out. But you want to please the other person. And so if they intermarried with somebody from who had other gods and had other idols and had other custom and ways, well, now they were going to have to let that into their household. And soon, before you know it, they were both worshiping another god or they were both bowing down to other idols. And they said, you know what? This has been a snare to us for so many years because we kept allowing this, even though God cautioned us against it, that this is something we're going to stop because I don't want to be putting myself in the place that leads me from God. And maybe it's not marriage, but... For you and I, it's places that we know we shouldn't be involved in or people we shouldn't be involved with or places we shouldn't go that lead us from God that we say, listen, I'm committing not to be there. But then they also decided to keep the Sabbath and the seven-year rest for the land. The seven-year produce was, this was unheard of anyway, that they would even take a day off because in that culture, it was agricultural society. That means that they had to farm their land every day. And the, the, you know what? The cows like to eat just like you. Every day they need to be fed and drink and all that stuff. So it's like they had to go and do all these things. And so God says, listen, take a rest. Don't do them on one day. That's like unheard of. And God says, take that rest because here's what I want you to do. I want you to trust me. I want you to trust me in this area, in every area of your life. And so he says, take a day off. And not only that, do this. This is even crazier, guys. He says, every seven years, just take a year off. Don't work that year. Don't work your land. Don't do anything. Now, that's nuts. But God says, are you going to trust me? Because I'll give you enough in the sixth year to provide for you for the whole seventh year. So they say, you know what, we're going to keep these things because it's helping us learn to trust God. And then he says another thing they committed to was that they were going to give the first portion of everything they had to God. They were going to put Him first no matter what. So they came with everything that came into their household. They took a portion of it. They called it the tithe and they brought it to the temple no matter what. The firstborn, the first of the fruits, everything. And they made these commitments because they said, these are the areas that we mostly messed up in that led us away. These were them. So if we can correct these and we can commit to that, then we can commit ourselves to our God. You know, when I think about this, it seems very overwhelming. I don't know about you guys, right? I'm like thinking they had to do all these sacrifices, they had to do all this stuff, and they had to be sure they were doing everything so good. And it's like, doesn't this obeying the commandments seem like the harder path? You know, it does, right? It seems like it's more difficult. But if we look at their history, it's telling us a whole different story. Because every time they committed themselves to keep those things and do those things, God prospered them beyond any nation. And yet when they didn't do those things and they were led away, it's then, no matter how much they thought it was the easier path, it was more difficult and it led to their ruin and it led them far away from God. You know, this is exactly what Moses was telling the people of Israel in his like farewell speech. He's about to enter into the, the, the promised land with the people that he had taken out of Egypt, these millions of people, and there they are getting ready to go into the promised land. But there was something that was going to happen. Moses was not going to go into the promised land with them. 
He was going to hand the mantle over to Joshua. Joshua was going to lead the people. And like his final address, he recounts the law, just like we have here. The history of Israel. He tells them all the things that God has done and the things that Israel has done. He recounts all that. He reminds them of the commandments and then he does this interesting thing. He says, listen, take six of the tribes and six of you go up onto this mountain. It's called Gerizim. And they get up there. Six of them climb up there. And now I'm going to take six of the other tribes and you're going to go to Mount Ebal. And they get up to the top of Mount Ebal. And he says, and this is what's going to happen. On Mount Ebal, you guys are going to yell at the top of your lungs all these curses that will come upon you if you don't stick with the Lord and follow His commands and do what's right. And so they start yelling and screaming and you hear it all over the place and they're yelling out all these curses. And then on the other side, he goes to Gerizim. Now you, Gerizim, you guys, you tell all the blessings that are going to come when you follow God, when you do what's right. And so they're yelling at the top of their lungs. And now these two mountains are there. This is what he says. This is what I find is very interesting about what happens when he talks about the people from Gerizim. Listen to this. The ones on the Mount of Blessing. He says, Now it shall come to pass, if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God, to observe carefully all His commands which I command you today, that the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all the blessings shall come upon you and overtake you, because you obeyed the voice of the Lord your God. I'm like, whoa. Think about that for a minute. You do what's right, and you're not even going to be able to run away from the blessings. They're like going to overtake you. If you're trying to run away, they're going to catch you and overtake you, and you're going to be blessed. All you've got to do is you worry about this. You don't worry about the blessings. You worry about obeying me, and the blessings will come upon you. You know, a lot of times, what we do is it the other way around. We focus on the blessings. We try to line everything up in our lives so it works out perfectly, right? And in the process of doing that, we get so busy that we lose focus on God. And God's saying, no, 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 let's do it a different way. You guys focus on me. You focus on doing what's right. And here's what I'll do. These blessings will overtake you. They're going to come upon you. So God set these two mountains before them. And here's the thing, they're in the land and then they would always see Ebal and Gerizim. I'm going to see cursing and I'm going to see blessing. And each time I'm going to know, as I look at even the lay of the land, I'm going to see that and as a reminder that God, what God will do in my life if I follow Him and what will happen to me if I go my own way. He says this, kind of as a final charge to them, I put it in your outline, he says, I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live, that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice and that you may cling to him. For he is your life and the length of your days and that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give to them. When I moved to California, as I was telling you a little bit earlier, it was a crazy time in my life and there were things in, that I wanted to run from and I just wanted to start again. And we, I, there was three guys, three, a couple other guys I knew. We packed up our stuff. We packed them up into two cars. Everything that we owned, everything that we had. We closed our bank accounts. We took everything, all our clothes, all our possessions. We threw out what we didn't want. We packed them into two cars and we drove across country. And I moved to California. And I lived there for about two years. And when I got to California, though, we, we, we had to find an apartment. We had to find homes. We had to find, one of us had to find a car. You know, we had to start brand new. 
And I remember sitting on the beach talking with my friend Scott who drove out there with me and he says to me, John, he goes, you know what? This is like a redo. You know, like when you play a game and things aren't going right and you're like, oh, I'm losing. Can we just redo this? Can we just start over this? I was like, yeah. He's like, we're getting a redo right now. We're getting to start over again. And maybe you're in that situation right now. Have you ever wanted to start over again? Maybe it's like everything. Or maybe it's just some things in your life that you just said, man, I really need to fix. I wish I could just have these start over. Maybe you feel like you keep failing. Maybe you feel like your marriage right now is struggling. Or maybe you made some bad decisions and you're sick of making wrong decisions. You just wish you could start over in some area of your life and do it again. Listen, we just can't pack up our bags and move across country to another state and solve our problems. It won't do it. Because as the saying goes, wherever you go, there you are. Right? Your problems are still going to be with you. That's not going to change anything. You see, our surroundings are not the problem. We are the problem. We are. The people of Israel had tried it their way for so long. So very long. To get to this point, Nehemiah, centuries went by. Centuries. To the point where they said, we're ready, Lord, to start again. From this point on, they never worship other gods again. Ever. As a whole. They don't do it. They make the change. Listen, God is offering this to you today. It's not too late. Everyone wants a do-over. But the answer for you and me will always be the same. It's this outline that we just put together. We have to recognize our past mistakes. We have to realize that God is the only solution and then we need to commit ourselves to Him. You take those three points and it applies to every single area of your life, every problem you've ever had. If it's a relationship problem and you admit your mistakes and you seek God for help and know that He's the solution and then you commit yourself, God's going to do it. No matter what it is, no matter what situation, no matter where you are right now, there's nothing too great. There was nothing so great that He would not take Israel back and wouldn't forgive them and wouldn't bring them into an area where they could prosper again. And He wants to do the same for you. That's the kind of God that loves you. Listen, it was the same for Israel and it's the same for you today. But maybe you're here today and you're saying, well, you know, I, I hear what you're saying and I don't know, someone invited me, I'm not even sure, I don't even know God that much. Maybe you've never read the Bible or maybe you've read the Bible all your life and you just never really said, hey, God, I, I, wanna, I want what you have for me. God's offering His forgiveness. You see, God wants to make your life new today. No matter who you are, listen to this. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And that's what God wants to do. He wants to come inside of you, come in your life, and make your life new. You see, but it's going to take something from you and I. It's going to take this outline that we just went through. You see, we're going to have to realize our sins, our past mistakes, that God, we've blown it before you. The Bible says this in Romans 3.23. It says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's not one person in this seat, in a seat in here, standing on this stage or was standing on this stage that hasn't blown it. 
You're not all alone. We're all the same. We've all blown it, but in order for us to move past that, we have to admit our mistakes to Him. The second thing is we have to recognize God is the only solution. The Bible says in 6.23, Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, God provided a ray. There is the only answer. He is the only answer. The only answer that you can ever find to make yourself right with God and to make up for past mistakes is what He did. He sent His Son to die on a cross for you and me, for our sins, so that we could be with Him forever. That's how much He loves you. That's how much He cares about you. That's how much He wants to see you prosper. And then the third thing is you dedicate yourself to God. The Bible says in Romans 10, 9 and 10, it says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Listen, today I don't know where you're at. I don't know if you've ever asked Jesus into your heart, if you've asked God to forgive your sins. But God is willing. He's willing right now to give you a fresh start to let you begin again. And He wants that. He may want that more than you. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to close in prayer, and then in the middle of that prayer, with our eyes closed and our, and our, um, and our heads bowed, I'm going to ask you if you want to pray a prayer, and then I'm going to say it, and you can follow that prayer. It's basically this outline. It's no magic formula. It's just us reaching out to God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. Lord, that you're ever faithful, full of mercy and grace. Lord, we thank you that you've loved us when we weren't lovable and when we didn't love you. Lord, I pray for everyone here that we would look at this outline, we would realize that you're the only solution. And that when we do these things here, Lord, it's then that we can enter into that newness of life, Lord, that you have for each and every one of us. Right now, if you're listening to my voice and you want to have your sins forgiven, if you want God to come into your life and change you, just raise your hand. Raise your hand right now. God bless you in the back. God bless you guys. God bless you all. Listen, what I'm going to ask you to do right now, simply it's my words, but it's your heart. We're going to pray a prayer where we invite God in. So right now, just repeat after me. Dear God, I've blown it. I've sinned against you. And I can't fix what I've done. Thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross so you could forgive me of my sins. Right now, I commit myself to you from this day forever. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.